But I am going to continue our series that we've been talking about. Um, if you haven't been here in the last few weeks, we've been in a series called Love is the Movement. And Justin has been talking to us about several things. A couple weeks ago, he talked to us about how love gets in the pool. It is, um, we are part of God's story. He wants us in the world, expressing our love to the world and not just sitting on the sidelines watching the world around us. We need to be active participants in his world. And then last week, we talked about how when love is the movement, we learn to love the you beside us, the person beside us, and that Christ's love is for all. So today I'm going to continue to talk about love, um, but the first thing I wanted to do is I was thinking about this, and I feel like every time I have the opportunity to stand up here and share with you, um, it turns out to be confession time for me. I don't know why that is, but this summer when I spoke, I confessed um, my struggles with my fears and my insecurities as we were um, getting ready to go on a trip to Africa. And this time it turns out that I have a new confession, or maybe it's not really a confession, but it's a realization that many of you who know me may have already known this fact about me, and I'm just now realizing it about myself. So here it goes. My confession is that I can sometimes be totally oblivious to the world around me. Now my first service. Okay, I knew my mom would be on there on that. Like, I knew she would back me up on this. It is true. I had some laughs the first service. So that means that I may be realizing this because I've been oblivious to this, but some of you all might have already realized this about me. So I get so caught up in my life that I tend not to ask too many questions about other people's lives. I know some of you that work with me are like, yes, we already knew this, Carrie. Um, but hey, guess what, I finally get it, so yay me. Um, it's, <laughs> it's sad, it is a sad fact about myself, but it's true, and I really do hate that about myself, and so I apologize truly from the bottom of my heart if my obliviousness has affected you in any way. I am truly working on this, and as a result of that, um, as Justin and I were talking this week about that and my obliviousness, and I bravely asked him the question of when are times in my life that I have been oblivious, and he bravely and truthfully responded to me, um, I have an example to give you. So when I come home from work, um, like most people, their husband or their wife say to them, hey, how was your day? And I continue to fill him in on all the fun things that have happened in kindergarten, um, our successes, our frustrations, who peed their pants that day, who puked during nap time, you know, all the normal things that happen in a kindergarten classroom. And then the conversation is over, and I move on to making dinner, or straightening up the house, and after a few minutes, he stops and he says, well, my day was good. <laughs> So, oops, yeah, I got so wrapped up in talking about me and my day and my frustrations, my excitements, that I completely forget to ask him about his day. And to him, I'm sure, it seems like I don't care. It's getting tangled, so, um, that I don't care. And really, I don't blame him, because it does come across as that. And it's not true. Like, I love him, and I want to know about his day. But I just get so caught up in sharing about me, my issues, my frustrations, my excitement, that I'm kind of oblivious to what's going on in his world. And am I alone in this, or does anyone else find themselves in this situation? Because I'm the only one. Okay, that's awesome. So 
for those of you who may just be too nervous to admit your obliviousness, I have a video I want to share with you. We'll call it a little training session, if you will. And we can do this together, and maybe it'll help us all become a little more aware and less oblivious of what's going on in the world around us. So Terry's got the first one. Clearly, somebody in this room murdered Lord Smythe, who, at precisely 3.34 this afternoon, was brutally bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. I want each of you to tell me your whereabouts at precisely the time that this dastardly deed took place. I was polishing the brass in the master bedroom. I was buttering his lordship's scones below stairs, sir. Why, I was planting my petunias in the potting shed. Constable, arrest Lady Smythe. But, but how did you know? Madam, as any horticulturist will tell you, one does not plant petunias until May is out. Take her away. Sorry, madam. It's just a matter of observation. The real question is how observant were you? All right, so that's the question. How observant were you? Did you guys notice what was really going on in the video, or were you so focused on who committed the crime that you missed everything else? Did anyone see some changes? Okay, a few of you? All right, yes, then I'm not alone. So let's go to part two, and I'm gonna blow your mind. So watch this, the next part. I know. And action. Clearly, somebody in this room murdered Lord Smythe, who, at precisely 3.34 this afternoon, was brutally bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. I want each of you to tell me your whereabouts at precisely the time that this dastardly deed took place. I was polishing the brass in the master bedroom. I was buttering his lordship's scones below stairs, sir. I was planting my petunias in the potting shed. Constable, arrest Lady Smythe. Ha-ha. <laughs> so, did I blow your mind? Because every time I watch this, I'm like, oh my gosh, I missed that one. There's 21 changes. Um, so, this video to me is crazy. There's so many things that have happened all at once that we weren't a real, that we didn't realize the first time. And so when you watch that part of it, it's like we see it with new eyes. And so now that you've seen what has happened in the, like, behind the scenes, I want to watch the first one that you saw the first time again and look at it through your new eyes and see if you notice and you're less oblivious. So Terry, go ahead and play that first video again. Clearly, somebody in this room murdered Lord Smythe, who, at precisely 3.34 this afternoon, was brutally bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. I want each of you to tell me your whereabouts at precisely the time that this dastardly deed took place. I was polishing the brass in the master bedroom. I was buttering his lordship's scones below stairs, sir. I was planting my petunias in the potting shed. Constable, arrest Lady Smythe. But, but, but how did you know? Madam, as any horticulturist will tell you, one does not plant petunias until May is out. Take her away. Sorry, madam. It's just a matter of observation. The real question is how observant were you? 
All right, so you saw that in a completely different right, uh, in a different way, right? You saw all the changes, catch the, caught a few things that maybe you missed the first time. I think we all get oblivious and miss things, and that makes me wonder how often we miss what it is that God wants us to see. So the Bible is full of verses about love, and so I had to Google how many verses there actually were about love because we'd be way too long to count. And so if the internet is correct, and if Google is right, love is mentioned 310 times total, um, about 40 more times in the New Testament than it was the Old Testament. And 1 John 3.16 says this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? And then verse 18 says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. So I was wondering, what does it mean to love with actions and truth? And I think that most of us are really good at one, and maybe not so much with the other. I think it's difficult to be good at both of these things. I tend to be stronger in my actions. I find it easier to serve people who need it by helping, by donating, by giving, whatever it is. Um, I find truth to be a little more difficult, but some of you all, um, not me, are, are good at telling people what they need to hear, and I think that's something that, you know, we need to have both of those. Um, the truth thing scares me because I always feel like, oh, I might hurt somebody's feelings and I don't want to do that. But, but sometimes you do need to hear the truth. Um, so I think it's hard to do both, but I also think that Jesus gives us the best picture of how to do both well in a different chapter in the Bible. So if you go to Matthew 25, verse 34, this is really long, so bear with me. I'll read it. Um, I think it's up there, but it is really long. So it says, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. <clears throat> for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, When did we see these things? And the king replied, Truly, I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of my brothers or sisters, you did for me. Then he'll look to those on the left and say, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they say, When did you... When did you when did we see you as all these things and did not help you? And he replied, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, by the right, but the righteous to eternal life. Oh, that is like, oh, God is not messing around in that verse. And when I read that, if I am honest, I really struggle with this verse so much. And if you know me, you may be like, wait, what? Like, you go to Africa every year and you serve people and mission work is my passion. Um, I love to capture stories with my camera in, in order to hopefully inspire other people to go and, and do those things. But the truth is, if I go to a city or if I see a random person on the street holding a sign begging for money, my first human reaction is scam, like they're gonna scam me so I can't do anything, or even worse, 
my reaction is, you know what, McDonald's is hiring, so maybe you should just go down the street and look for a job instead of trying to get money from me, which is not what God wants me to do. Like, he wants me, I, my first reaction should be, you know what, how can I help in this situation? What does God want me to see in this situation? What would he want me to do? How can I see this person as he sees him, even if it is a scam? Like, even if I do get taken advantage of. The verse in Matthew doesn't say, you clothed me because you knew I really needed it, and I wasn't trying to take advantage of you. Like, I was, I was being real with you. Um, <clears throat> it doesn't say, you know what, I deserve to be in prison, so I don't... I shouldn't matter to you. It's okay. I'm releasing you from visiting me. That verse says you saw a need and you acted. No questions asked. So when love is a movement, I think our hearts move from self to service. We lose our obliviousness to the world around us, and we focus less on ourselves and more on the people we come in contact with and what they need regardless of what we assume about them. And so with all this love talk, as we know, 310 verses, the Bible is serious about love, and God is serious about love, and how we show, those to, uh, show it to those around us. It's not just about our words. We can say all kinds of nice words. We can offer nice, genuine smiles and tell people, you know what, we'll be praying for them. And I had a timeout because I didn't write this, um, and this was more for me because I have a tendency to be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry that's happening. I'll pray for you. And then I walk away, and life gets in the way, and guess what, I forget to pray. So I think... Um, just taking that moment and saying, you know what, let me pray for you now because I know I'm going to get busy and let me do something now. It's just a little thing, but I feel like it's something. So that was my side note. Um, <laughs> but um, if we don't have actions to back it up, that's why I'm saying, if we don't have actions to back it up, then all of our words mean nothing. Like, it doesn't count. And you all know that super popular verse that they talk about in um, weddings, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, at the beginning of it, before the wedding passage, it tells us that, you know what? You can be the most um, genius person on, the, on earth. You can possess all knowledge. You can fathom all mysteries. You can have faith that moves mountains. Like, how, much of, how many of us have faith that moves mountains? But you can have all of these things. You can give everything that you have to the poor. Like, it's basically saying you can be a superhuman or a super Christian, but if what we do has no love to back it, then it means nothing. Like, we basically just become a clanging cymbal, which is like if Jacob would just come up here and start beating the cymbal like animal, you know? Like, nobody wants to hear that. It's just noise, and you're going to leave and go away. So we can preach Jesus all day, every day, but if we don't have actions to back up our words, because actions, you know what they say, actions speak louder than words, then we might as well just shut up and and go about our lives. <clears throat> so, my question is, <clears throat> can I get some water? <laughs> if somebody can do that, is that okay? My question is, how do we change our perspective and take our eyes off ourselves and become aware of those around us? And I think it starts with realizing that we're children of God. 1 John 3, 1 says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And if we stop right there and look at that sentence, there is a great big exclamation point there. And even the next one says, and that is what we are. Again, with a great big exclamation point. And when I teach in kindergarten sentences, like exclamation points are awesome because it's exciting. Thank you so much. Um, that's like an exciting thing. It's not just telling you something, oh yeah, you're a child of God. You know, like, it's exciting. Like, it's jumping up and down. Like, we are God's children. And when we truly realize that God 
who created the universe, that he designed and created us, that he took time to like mix together all that DNA to make you and me, that it wasn't just some random chance that you are who you are. Like he took that time to make you. And even when we mess up, even when we turn our backs on him, he continues to pursue us. Like he died for us, regardless of what we did. And so hopefully, we're no longer oblivious to what that means and instead feel overwhelmed by his love for us. And we also realize that he didn't just do that for us. Like, it wasn't just about me. God died for me. But he did it for everyone. He did it for atheists. He did it for murderers. He did it for liars, for cheaters, for hypocrites. He did it for your annoying neighbor. He did it for the politicians in the community. He did it for your brother and coworkers. Like everyone, whether you like them or not, God died for them. And they need to know and they need to be able to feel the love that God has for them. And you may be the only person in their lives that can share that love with them. Um, and not just with your words, by saying, oh, you know what, God loves you so much. Awesome. But like by doing something and having actions that back that up. So I'm going to jump ahead here because um, science is not my strong suit. Maybe that's another confession of mine. Like science and math, oh, not my strong suit. Um, math and science both hurt my head. Most of the time they leave me in tears and um, we're just not friends. So, but has anyone seen the movie Interstellar? A few of you. Okay. I know Maya Presley loves this movie. It hurts my head. It's so deep and it's so big. And it's so scientific, I just, I walked away and I was like, I have a headache. Like, it was not enjoyable. But I want to show you a clip from that movie and talk about it afterwards, because I really do think it pertains to what we're talking about this morning. So, Terry, go ahead. You once said that Dr. Mann was the best of us. He's remarkable. We're only here because of him. And yet, yet here he is. He's on the ground. And he's sending a very unambiguous message telling us to come to his planet. Granted, but Edmund's data is more promising. We should vote. Well, if we're going to vote, there's something you should know. Rand, he has a right to know. That has nothing to do with it. What does? She's in love with Wolf Edmonds. Is that true? Yes. And that makes me want to follow my heart. But maybe we've spent too long trying to figure all this out with theory. You're a scientist, Bran. So listen to me. When I say that love isn't something we invented, it's observable, powerful. It has to mean something. Love has meaning, yes. Social utility, social bonding, child rearing. We love people who have died. Where's the social utility in that? None. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. I'm drawn across the universe to someone I haven't seen in a decade who I know is probably dead. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. 
maybe we should trust that, even if we can't understand it yet. Okay, so big stuff, right? It's kind of deep. This week I was reading a little bit about how some scientists believe that there are 12 dimensions that actually exist. And while I didn't understand how all of that works and the theories behind their thoughts, it was a topic that hurt my head, I found it interesting that they believe that the 12th dimension, that highest dimension, is the realm of love. And so this is what a portion of the article that I read said. The 12th dimension is the realm of love. It's the dimension of the vibration of love that penetrates through everything and unites everything. All focus and awareness, information, form, change, spirit, soul, infinity, eternity, God, the multiverse, and the omniverse. Being at this level means that one has reached to the source of consciousness or love consciousness. This is not to be mistaken with the romantic love we feel for each other. However, it can be a catalyst to tune into this frequency of vibration. However, we have not yet awoken to these higher levels, and most of our consciousness is not aligned to these dimensions, but we are getting there. Maintaining a, self, a sense of love in your heart probably is the best way to align all of the dimensions of your consciousness. We are beings that have access to all these dimensions of consciousness at any moment and place. So, before you think, oh my word, she's getting all weird and new agey on us, <laughs> let me say this. When love is the movement in your life, you have a perspective change. We start to see people how Jesus sees them. So, does anyone remember these pictures from the 90s? Because I grew up in the 80s and 90s. Do you remember these things being a thing? Okay, awesome. Some of us do. So these were like all the rage back ooh, in the early 90s, mid to late 90s, actually. And I totally jumped on the cool kid bandwagon and got one of these for my room. And my awesome mom still had it after all these years, and I was able to bring it and show you instead of just try to describe it to you. So this is a picture of a unicorn. You guys see it? Yeah? No? <laughs> I'm the only one. Like, she's right here. She's, like, raised up on her hind legs. There's some trees in the picture. It's 3D. Like, isn't it obvious? No? Okay. So, <laughs> it wasn't obvious for my kids either or the first service, and I knew that everybody was going to want to see this afterwards, and it's here for you to look at. That's fine. My kids spent forever trying to, like, make their eyes see what's in this picture. And the reason I talk about the different dimensions from earlier, I'm going to set it down here for just a second we'll come back to it, um, is because I think we tend to one-dimensionalize people. You know, we see them as the drug addict or the nosy neighbor or that annoying politician or, you know, the person that next door that doesn't take care of their property, the cranky old lady, whatever. And when we do that, it's easy for us to just wipe, write them off. We just wipe our hand, like wash our hands of it. We walk away. They're not our problem. They're frustrating. Like, I'm done with them. We don't see them as children of God. But when we see someone how Jesus sees them, it changes our perspective. Just like this picture, and I'm not going to pick it up again because it is kind of heavy. <laughs> right now, when you look at it, you see just random dots and colors, right? It's just print. It kind of looks like that old TV white noise that used to be on like late at night. Um, there's nothing creative about it. There's nothing artistic. There's nothing fun. There's nothing meaningful. There's no story. It's just a one-dimensional picture when you look at it. But if you shift your focus, the picture changes. It's 3D. 
It is a unicorn, I promise, I'm not lying to you. There's a unicorn, there's trees, there's action in the photo, it's rearing up on its legs. There's a story inside that picture. So just like that drug addict or the neighbor you can't stand or the loudmouth politician, the cranky lady, if we begin to see other dimensions of people, if we listen to their story, ask questions about their lives, help them if they need it, then love, that most powerful dimension that the scientists were talking about, moves into their world and begins to change their life. So back to 1 Corinthians 13, that wedding passage that's always being read. I really like how the message, which is a different version of the way the Bible is written, says. It says, love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love never dies. So I realized that the article that I read about the 12 dimensions on consciousness probably wasn't a Christian article. I don't know anything about the author who wrote it or what the person believes. But what I loved about the article is that even these scientists, who may or may not have been believers, sees that the greatest or highest of all dimensions is love. Just like the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest of these is love. Greater than hope, greater than faith, Love is what the greatest thing is. And God's love is the only thing that can truly change a person and change the world. And when we refocus our eyes to see the world around us through that lens of love, we allow Jesus to use us to change the world. We see people differently, just like we can see that picture. And love really is a movement that can't be stopped. And even though we're humans and we don't love perfectly all the time, we aren't always patient, um, we sometimes do keep tracks of those sins that people commit against us. Um, sometimes we're me first. Sometimes we're envious. Um, we don't always look for the best in other people. Even in all those unloving times in our lives, God's love is so powerful that he still uses us to make his love known in the world. Like that verse said, love never dies. So, tomorrow we celebrate Martin Luther King Day. And I wanted to share a quote with you by him. He says, we must discover the power of love, the power, the redemptive power of love. And when we discover that, we will be able to make of this old world a new world. We will be able to make men better. Love is the only way. So, as we leave here today and brave that snowy, snowy outside, we go back to our homes, may or may not go back to work tomorrow, but sometime this week, as we excitedly count down the days until we're out of this building um, and look forward to what we're able to do moving forward. Um, what is it that you and I can do to open our eyes to the world around us and see people differently? How can we make men better? How can we carve out time in our busy schedules to serve someone else? Not because it's our duty or because we feel like it's one more thing we're guilted into doing, but we do it out of love. We do it because we recognize the love that God has for us, because we're his children, and we want to share his love and represent him well to those around us. 
I don't think we necessarily need to create something new in our lives to move forward because we are all busy. Um, I think we need to look at our lives with a new perspective, refocus. Um, we really need to be uh, intentional about how we use our time, how we use our resources in the most life-giving and loving way possible. In Jesus' time, people were, requ were required to carry a soldier's coat. If the soldier came up to them and said, you're carrying my coat, they were required to go a mile with that coat. And Jesus, as he does, as he always does, one-upped that requirement and said, hey, if he asked you to carry that coat for a mile, go to. Like, which is hard to do when you have so many, I don't like people telling me what to do. Like, I'm like, no. So, but you know, that's not the right attitude to have. Like, you want me to do it for one mile? I'll go for two. Jesus wants us to go that extra mile. So what are you do already doing throughout your week that you can go the extra mile? What are your kids involved in that allows you to minister to families who you already come in contact with on a regular basis? Can you ask the barista at Stone Tower, because you go there all the time for coffee, how she's doing, right? Can you avoid the self-checkout at the grocery so that you're forced to talk to the cashier instead of just being like, nope, not today? Um, maybe you do need to create some time and some extra space in your life to make love a movement in your life. Can you mentor an at-risk student in the county? Because let me tell you, our schools are full of them and they need you. Um, can you visit Holbrooks and share a smile with an elderly person that may not have anyone else in their life? Um, can you get involved with the youth ministry as we move into a new building and we have so many possibilities and dreams and things that we want to do for this community? Um, the list goes on, and I could stand up here forever to, to say things. But really, I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to open your eyes. I want to encourage you to be aware, to change your perspective, um, just refocus and see others how Jesus sees them and go that extra mile. So we're going to pray, and then the band will come up.